This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Eric Wargo. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Eric is creator of the Nightshirt blog and author of the books Time Loops and Precognitive Dreamwork and The Long Self. Like most people, Eric's life was changed by a UFO encounter at a Sheryl Crow concert. Yeah, well, my story begins with UFOs, weirdly enough. And it's strange because that's not where I really ended up in my thinking. But yes, it was in July. It was on July 4th, 2009. So yeah, 2009, July 4th. I was in Philadelphia and sort of camped out in there's sort of a long sort of green belt area up in front of the Philly art museum. I don't know if you know Philadelphia, but uh, you know, a lot of people sort of camped out kind of listening to, to a concert. Uh, Cheryl Crow was playing on the steps of the, of the art museum. And uh, we were waiting, you know, fireworks were going to start later that evening, but I was kind of laying there uh, looking up the sky and this, these, two gold or not gold like orange lights like just sort of were were moving across the sky but they were they were it was like they were dancing with each other it was very strange they were like playing a game of tag or 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 whatever and they're sort of dancing with each other i tried to photograph it i had a one of those flip cams that they used to sell back then it didn't come out at all on the video, which is not surprising. It was pretty far away. I mean, this is not, it was, it was pretty high up, uh, it seemed. But it was not a plane, and it was not a satellite. You know, I've seen tons of satellites. Grew up in Colorado with the clear skies and, and watched satellites. So I don't know what it was. I mean, I, in, I thought it was, it was very, it was strange enough that, you know, the next day I got online to, I didn't really know much about UFOs. I didn't know about MUFON, but I quickly discovered MUFON. Discovered that there had been a, a lot of reports of what I saw in eastern Pennsylvania uh, the same night. And so that prompted me to, you know, make file an official report with MUFON and the investigator called me and blah, blah, blah. And it was enough to get me to start reading about the topic. You know, this was not a close encounter, you know, and it, there was nothing, no high strangeness about it or anything like that. But it was sort of what it took to get me to start reading about the topic. And as one, you know, I read all the things that one reads when one's a sort of newbie in the UFO area. And ultimately, of course, one starts reading Jacques Vallée, if you're serious about this subject. Valet, I just found, you know, astonishing. And he really opened my mind in a lot of interesting ways. You know, I, like most newbies, my assumption was this was, these were ET spacecraft, blah, blah, blah. And of course, Valet has a much more nuanced and unusual take on the whole subject, as I'm sure your listeners are well aware. And most interestingly for me, and I guess kind of even troublingly for me, he took the psychic component of it very seriously. I had never been a knee-jerk skeptic about things like UFOs, 
they sort of fit into my worldview, my scientific worldview pretty comfortably, but psychic phenomena didn't. I was, my parents were psychologists, um, you know, scientifically trained. And I, at that point was in fact, the editorial director for a psychology organization. And, you know, there is nothing more anathema to, to psychologists <laughs> than the idea of psychic phenomena and ESP. And I just sort of, I guess, imbibed that or, you know, by osmosis, I guess, uh, just sort of incorporated that assumption that, you know, ESP can't be real. It certainly didn't fit with my sort of materialistic understanding of mental functioning, you know. And so, okay, so to read this really, really brilliant person, Jacques Vallée, uh, taking seriously the psychic component of the UFO phenomenon was like a real challenge to my worldview. But, you know, the more I read, the more I realized there's something here I've been, you know, ignoring my whole life. And so that sort of got me to delve into the, to the, to the phenomenon of, you know, ESP and psychic research and so forth. And so I spent spent the last 11 years, I guess, studying that. I mean, as one does with the UFO t- topic, I kind of I kind of set it aside eventually because it was just too much of a quagmire of belief systems and shady characters and and it's so hard to to know what's what uh with UFOs. So I'm I kind of got I kind of got that disgust that I think a lot of people do. Some of people stick with it, you know, and, and good for them. But I sort of I sort of have set that topic aside. I'll return to it every now and then with speculations on my blog and stuff. But I, I it's a subject that I just don't feel qualified to to talk about. But the but ESP research really grabbed me. Not just ESP research. Honestly, ESP research by parapsychologists is really boring. But the anecdotal, you know, when you combine it with you know, real, real stories from real people, you know, even if they're quote unquote anecdotal, it's a, you know, extremely interesting subject. Now, it also started to make sense of experiences I had had, you know, I, this is something I, I write about in my books, especially the forthcoming book on dream work. People, you know, have precognitive dreams that, or they'll have a dream vivid dream about something like, you know, an attack in New York. And then two days later, 9-11 happens, things like that. And they'll go, gosh, that was weird. What did that mean? Blah, blah, blah. But then they'll just kind of sweep it under their mental rug because it doesn't fit into their, their frameworks, you know, their existing frameworks for understanding the world. You know, if they're like me and they're scientifically educated and, and so forth, it just it has no place. So you just sort of boot it out of your mind. And the thing is, I had had multiple experiences like that over the course of my life, including a 9-11 dream that I had just swept under my mental rug. You know, it's like it just had no place. And then, but delving into the subject of psychic phenomena, I was forced to then go back and rethink some of those experiences and realize, oh, you know, I, I wasn't just being self-deceived or whatever. I think probably the biggest turning point uh, in that regard was Daryl Bem's famous 
article in 2011 called Feeling the Future. In fact, I happened to be at, this was published by a major psychology organization that will go unnamed. And I was working at the rival major psychological association that will also go unnamed. Anyway, so uh, this, uh, this, this article, I think it was a preprint. I don't think you didn't even come out yet, crossed my desk because some of my colleagues were thinking of writing a very angry letter to that organization for even considering publishing you know, something as absurd as a scientific study that purported to find evidence for precognition or what he called, I think he called it presentiment in that article. Uh, the idea was these were large groups of college student undergrads that he put into these experiments in which he sort of reversed the, or, the, the ordinary sequence of stimulus and response, essentially, in a bunch of classic psychology paradigms. So for instance, like priming or, or whatever, his most famous finding was that participants who tried to guess which of two curtains on a computer screen had a picture behind them. They were more accurate than chance would predict when the picture that was going to be revealed was erotic than when it was just a boring scene or whatever. And so he got these very, these significant, very significant results in a bunch of the series of experiments and then published it in, in 2011. And this article got you know, tons of play in the press. You know, he was on the Colbert Report and and stuff. And so it was kind of a minor splash there for a little while. And it just enraged skeptics, you know, <laughs> you know, including people at my organization. And I was, and I got this sort of firsthand taste of the, the hostility that parapsychology arouses in a lot of skeptics and sort of mainstream established scientists you know mm-hmm. they just they just have a a loathing of this topic that is really irrational and that irrationality of the, of that response in and of itself is fascinating to me and it it triggered my you know underdog radar you know when you when i see someone being bullied i you know i have a sort of natural want to um see what's going on and you know, so that too was kind of impetus for for really delving into the topic more seriously. But like I said, I'd had I'd had personal precognitive dreams. I'd, I'd been recording my dreams since the mid nineteen nineties, very systematically. You know, actually keeping computer records and so forth, and never had occurred to me the pot, you know, the, even the topic of precognitive dreams was not even on my radar. I was, you know, looking at it from a Freudian, Jungian, whatever approach, but suddenly, okay, a couple of, you know, weird experiences suddenly started to make sense. And then, so I really delved into studying precognitive dreams in my own life. And I don't know. So, so the rest is history. So anyway, all the, the last decade of research then went into my blog and my books, the the first book, Time Loops, which came out a couple of years ago. And then I have a new book coming out in a couple of months called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. And it's sort of a sort of enlisting people to get in on the act of studying their own precognitive dreams as sort of citizen scientists, because it's such a prevalent phenomenon. It's incredibly real, but the, we need to, to convince people. And 
the only way we're going to do that is lots of people with fat dream journals who can prove that they've been precognizing experiences in their life. That is such a great phrase, the long self. Does that have any tethers to the organization, the long now, or is the long self different territory entirely? It's my own phrase, but it's, I think, inspired by, it's inspired a little bit by the, I I guess it's a Sanskrit, I forget the Sanskrit term, but it means long body. The idea that, that we are continuous in time. I mean, the big, well, one of the big take-homes of my work is that the block universe model that Einstein's work pointed to is right, and that it is the only way to explain the phenomena that I'm studying. That, that is to say that we are, we are really living in a four-dimensional space-time. And this is not at all controversial for physicists. I mean, they've, been, they've worked under this assumption for a century, more than a century. But the public has a hard time understanding that. You know, we, we really don't think well in four dimensions. We think well in three dimensions, but the fourth dimension, it really stymies us. And what that means is that, in a sense, the future is already present. And it's... You can think of the universe as a, as a big block, a four-dimensional block. And we can't picture such a thing, but just, you know, you, you can imagine just a big brick. Uh, actually, the writer and mage, Alan Moore, uses the metaphor of a, of a glass football. Think of a glass football, gigantic glass football, with one tip of the football being the Big Bang and the other tip of the football being a big crunch at the end of the universe, you know, and everything in between is is this big glass football and everything every object in the universe is really a line so in einsteinian space-time everything is a world line okay and all particles are really lines snaking through that glass block you and i are like these big four-dimensional worms you know we you know stretch and wind through that glass block for several decades, ideally, before the particles that we're made of sort of dissipate and entwine in different ways. But so whatever we experience as the present moment is just a cross-section. It's a cross-section of that worm, of that, that block universe. Wow, I like that. Yeah, I like it too. It's a great, it's a great image. That's from his, um, his novel, Jerusalem, his like million-word novel, Jerusalem, which I've only read parts of I'm, I'm ashamed to say <laughs> it's uh it's uh but it's 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 wonderful i mean he's he's got some just amazing images in there of what he his his term is eternalism that's a classic philosophical term let's circle back for a moment to the long self when we consider identity or what the boundary around our subject is like from the deeper field of the long self well what is our identity like as the long self. Can you speak a bit more to the long self? Uh, I'm, I guess I'm trying to get people to realize that, that by using that term, I'm trying to emphasize that we are more than who we are at this moment in time. That, in fact, we're not somehow severed from a past that's lost to oblivion, nor are we facing this indeterminate 
future that couldn't possibly have an influence on us right now. I, we are, our behavior, our consciousness, if you want to call it that, is shaped not only by our past, everything that's led to this moment, but by everything ahead of us until our death. And I do think that this is a ultimately a brain-based thing. The brain, I believe, is a tesseract. A tesseract is, is an object from science fiction. It was introduced by Madeleine Lengel in her book, A Wrinkle in Time, and then it's been sort of re, reincorporated in a lot of more recent science fiction. But the idea of an object that is a cord- sort of a portal or a corridor through time. And I believe that the brain, I literally think that the brain or the nervous system is going to turn out to be such an object. It's a, it's a four-dimensional, well, we're all four-dimensional objects, but certain kinds of special objects, including quantum computers, and we can get back to that if you want to later, seem to be able to pass information backwards in time as well as forwards. There's kind of this eternalist, there's kind of an eternal quality to them. And I think the brain is going to turn out to be such an object. And thus, in your brain right now, believe it or not, are experiences ahead of you in time that you haven't had yet. And yet they're shaping how you think, how you act. They're there right now and you can access it. There are ways of accessing this. For instance, in dreams and dream work, you can access information about experiences that you have no idea of, but that are going to shape your life. They're shaping your life right now because they will impact you consciously later. And that, if you really think about that, that is utterly mind-blowing. Also because of what it implies about our ability to influence our past. If future experiences are shaping my behavior on an unconscious level right now, that means that salient experiences in my day today, you know, something startling happens or something, you know, some emotional upheaval of some sort, that influenced me in the past via my dreams, via my other unconscious processes. That means that we, our consciousness right now is shaping who we were. Yeah. This is blowing my trans-temporal mind. It's mind-blowing. This, it's, it's mind-blowing, but honestly, I mean, I can provide lots of evidence of this. <laughs> and that's what part of my, my new book is doing that. I've got some, beyond just ordinary, you know, precognitive dream of something happening two days later. I mean, I've got examples of profound experiences in people's lives that demonstrably influenced them decades earlier. So, of course, I have to ask about our ability to genuinely choose in this universe you're describing. Free will. When we consider the implications of this way of experiencing time, duration in the glass football, then we immediately confront questions of sovereignty, identity, free will. What becomes of our unique volition in the reality? that you're describing? Well, I totally precognized that you were going to ask that question. I would expect no less. And I precognize it because everybody asks that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it, this is, whatever I answer in, your, in this program is not going to be sufficient. I do 
highly recommend not to make a shameless pitch for my new book, but this is, this is a big topic in the new book. You know, there's a, a whole section of the book devoted to answering precisely this question. Yeah, the topic of free will always comes up. And one thing you need to know about free will is that this is not a universal human hang-up. <laughs> this is a very Western hang-up because, and it has a lot to do with our ideas about individualism and blah, blah, blah in a capitalist, Protestant capitalist society. Other cultures don't have such a need to sort of figure out where our free will lies. The question of free will is a huge one, but when you drill down, it's hard to pin down what it means. In a, in a, fourth, in a four-dimensional universe, your will may be free. Whatever your will amounts to, you may make a freely willed decision in the moment. But when you zoom out and see the block universe from a four-dimensional perspective, that decision, that act of free will, is all, was already part of the four-dimensional block universe. You know, you can just look back on your actions a minute ago or a second ago. You know, it felt free-willed in the moment, but it's now locked. It's locked in, right? You know, you have now a vantage point from which that action that felt freely-willed at the time is now uh, set in stone, essentially. What Einstein realized and, and, and his group realized was that, well, there's always a vantage point on our on any you know freely willed action in the now there's always another vantage point from which it's already set in stone and it's in the past so what people are really worried about what what i think the question about free will is really question of can we if if it all happened again could could things turn out differently and i think the answer is no i think it's a it's a it's the universe is as it is and what bugs people is this sense that they don't have the freedom to take a different course of action than they actually did. But then you're talking about a sort of imaginary counterfactual reality. It, it's something we think about, but it's not something that actually exists. If all things, all causes, both from the past and future, you know, lead to a certain outcome at, at a certain time point, then if you re-ran re the universe again, it would all happen the same way. And that's all I'm saying. So you can experience free will. You know, we all experience this, that we are somehow free, or we imagine that we're free, but that's, that even that imagination or that feeling of free will is part of a larger block universe that is kind of fixed. And what I invite people to do, people don't, people don't like hearing that. They think, well, this is, I, I don't like that. And, and they'll probably, you know, turn off this podcast and <laughs> go to something else. <laughs> what I invite people to do is meditate on it. <laughs> Take the block universe as a Zen koan and just confront it in meditation. What I always advise, I have this sort of meditative technique when I'm meditating. I sort of, if I have sort of an intrusive thought or something that, I don't want to dismiss, but I don't want to, I want to come back to it, but I don't want, I don't want it to intrude on my meditation. I will just, I have a sort of imaginary mental shelf in my visual field and I just sort of set it on that shelf. I can take it down again when I'm done, you know, and I can, I'm not getting rid of it. I'm not denying it, but I just, you know, I'm setting it on my shelf and not, and setting it aside for the moment. And that's what I ask people to do with their 
ideas about free will and their preconceptions about free will. Because the more you meditate in a kind of Zen, I'm, I'm sort of, um, that's my tradition. So that's the one I know best. And I'm not saying Zen is any better than any other meditative tradition. But the more you sort of meditate on this, you will have epiphanies that the block universe is incredibly beautiful. And it paradoxically, sort of in the way all Zen epiphanies are paradoxical, it actually makes you feel more free to get rid of your hangups about free will. So I really recommend people just sort of set free will on the shelf, sit with the idea of the block universe and the implications of the block universe. And I don't guarantee, but I, I suspect you will have, eventually you will have an epiphany that this is a profound way of looking at ourselves and the world. And it actually is incredibly liberating. A lot of Zen Satori experiences are essentially views of the glass block in one way or another. They're kind of this profound, blissful, funny, overwhelming experience of the permanence within impermanence. And I've written about this on my blog a bit, the kind of the way this glass block worldview, eternalism meshes with Zen. But an epiphany like that is it, you, you will cease worrying about free will and the whole free will question when you have these experiences. I love the invitation to experiencing it as a koan, the long self as an invitation to move beyond simple binaries of are we free or is it all preordained fixity? In that sense, we can come to a developmental arc that offers vantage points beyond fixity versus dynamism or beyond subject versus object, we can experience a block universe where subjectivity is included, objectivity is included, intersubjectivity is included, and interobjectivity is included. But reality does not reduce or collapse to any one of them. Does that feel fair? No, that was excellent. That was, you phrased it much better than I, I did. I took 10 minutes and the, you, that, that's, that was great. Yeah, no, that's, you, you have, you've got it exactly right. This being Aliens and Artists, I have to ask whether your work in time loops and in your new book, Precognitive Dreams, may provide insight regarding the following facets of the phenomenon, which experiencers report consistently. I'm specifically focusing here on how abductees and contactees report missing time, gained time, time dilation, and they also describe events where time is frozen or suspended for one or more experiencers, while it continues to flow for other human beings. Perhaps most confounding, some experiencers describe being moved from one timeline into another. So they perceive, for example, one day pass on Earth while they live a month's worth of time in another environment or on another planet aboard a craft, etc. Additionally, they describe contact having lasting effects such as precognitive dreams and other non-ordinary capacities. How does your work intersect with or offer insight on these features 
and effects for abductees and contactees? Yeah, that's a big question. My, I don't want this to come across as like overly skeptical toward those kinds of experiences at all. I think these experiences are real. The question, question is, are you talking about some real physical effect or are you talking about something subjective? And I know that there are all kinds of experiences that can radically alter our subjective experience of time that don't necessarily involve anything. They don't necessarily even involve precognition or retrocausation. I mean, just, just think about a dream. You know, a dream can feel like it's a, an ep, a narrative going on for hours. In fact, you're only asleep for a couple minutes. What, you're describe, what you describe about that time dilation effect occurs also with near-death experiences. It occurs with hallucinogenic experiences or psychedelic experiences. There are a lot of experiences that, are, that don't necessarily involve anything paranormal, quote-unquote, but that produce that same time dilation effect, which tells me that this is something that the brain is capable of, not necessarily something that's caused by something beyond our understanding. You know, I'm just, I'm thinking about the, the near-death experiences, for instance. You know, I've, I've worked with people, you know, a, a lot of people who have very powerful uh, precognitive abilities um, started with uh, some kind of near-death experience, and they, they describe the same thing. You know that they were, they felt like they were on an alien planet for weeks or years, and they, you know, it turns out they were only unconscious for uh, fifteen minutes, or you know that kind of thing. So I, I, my short answer is I don't know. My long answer is I think it's it's important to look to what the kinds of experiences the brain can generate, even just under the influence of substances, you know, and realize that there are a lot of mundane things that can cause those experiences. But that's, again, I want to, I want to stress that I'm not <laughs> trying to be skeptical about abduction experiences and so forth. I, unfortunately, I don't have any direct experience of that phenomenon. And it's, and it felt when I was reading in the UFO literature, it felt like the kind of area that I didn't even want to delve into because, you know, it just felt like, well, if even just talking about first and second kind UFO encounters can get to be a quagmire, well, geez, the <laughs> abduction, the whole abduction thing, just like, I don't want to deal with this, you know, I, cause I, I just don't know how to evaluate what people are saying. So I, I don't, I don't know how to answer your question better than that, but I will say that it's important not to fast forward past what we know about what kinds of experiences the brain can give us or fail to give us. I mean, in some of these, these uh, missing time or time dilation effects that may just occur for mundane reasons, this can be an effect of just losing our normal temporal yardsticks. You know, when we don't have uh, some sort of touchstone to tell us how time is passing in the objective world, it can feel like an eternity. Even just, you know, we just know this even from the difference between different kinds of experiences, you know, very exciting, interesting experiences, you know, time collapses, you know, that feels like you 
it's an instantaneous kind of thing versus a very boring experience can, you know, make time feel like it dilates. I mean, these very mundane things can cause time to compress and, and expand subjectively. So I'm, I'm afraid that's probably a disappointing answer. Not at all. It's intriguing and relevant. I want to ask a question that may be a bit of a stretch, but what the hell? <laughs> For me, reading your work evokes memories of reading Bergson, coupled with what you said of Einstein in regards to the block universe. The inveterate integralist in me wonders if there's any way to bring the two, Bergson and Einstein, together in regards to their work with time and also. Part two of this would be, I wonder how intensity of meaning impacts precognitive dreams. So when we bring time and meaning together, when we join Bergson and Einstein, what then? My gosh, my short answer to that is that I, I wouldn't try to bring them together because they're this is an example of those kinds of debates you get between people who are really coming from two completely different discourses. I'm sort of a postmodern Foucaultian <laughs> guy, you know, <laughs> trapped in amber uh, from like 19, yeah, circa 1990. You know, that's, that's kind of where my, I kind of come from intellectually. So I think a lot in terms of discourses. And I, for, I think that, that, you know, this is, we can bracket this topic, but, you know, I think that, that part of the problem of, contemporary parapsychology is that they don't understand that they're working within a discourse. Uh, but the, and I talk, and I do address this in, in time loops, the distinction between discourses of causation and causality, which is like the sciences and physics and so forth, and the discourses that are interested in meaning and meanings. And that's the humanities, basically. And of course, they both sides can draw inspiration from the other and be informed by the other. But ultimately, they're talking about two different things that I don't think even really intersect. And there's always a temptation to try and make them intersect somehow. And the big example of the attempt, I think a failed attempt to make them intersect is Carl Jung. And we could come back to Carl Jung because his synchronicity theory was an attempt to mesh a theory of time with a theory of meaning. Okay. So Bergson and Einstein were really talking completely past each other. Bergson was talking about the subjective dimension of our experience of time. And of course, yes, it's an interfuse with, with meaning. We don't, everything we experience has, is meaningful for us. I mean, that's almost the definition of to have an experience, really. It has to be, it's, it's meaningful. It impacts you and it, it's important in terms of your life and so forth. The objective scientific framework of Einstein was to, the aim of science is to try and bracket and eliminate as much as possible that subjective meaning dimension. Because it's, in the sciences, that's a bias. And you want to, as much as possible, cleanse yourself of those biases, you know, through the mechanisms of science, the sort of the collective protocols and so forth of science are trying to kind of see what reality is outside of our own subjective biased meanings and so forth. So, you know, meaning was not interesting to Einstein, at least as a physicist. And so I see them as really talking about completely different things. Now, they're both equally important. And yes, I think that 
I haven't thought a lot about Bergson in relation to precognition. I mean, I, I sort of I touch on him a little bit in time loops, but I don't really delve into it. And he was super important for me like many years ago. And then I kind of set him aside and I, I haven't, I've always felt like I need to go back to, to Bergson and really delve into him again, because so many of the things he said in creative evolution and matter and memory are just so, so such rich ideas, but I did, never knew what to do with them or how to integrate them into, into the work I do now. So, so yes, I think Bergson is super important and I, I would love to have more to say about him, but I don't think it's, imp- it's necessary to somehow integrate Einstein and Bergson into a single theory. Cause I don't think that's, I don't think that's a workable or even a desirable thing to do. I think I'm happy with things being in different discourses and not reconcilable with each other. This was the mistake that Carl Jung made with synchronicity. He was very tempted. He wanted to, in very good faith, he wanted to understand paranormal phenomena, and a lot of which were, in fact, precognitive phenomena. He was working at a time before precognition was really much of a, a concept. He was sort of within the, the sort of cultural framework of telepathy. That was kind of the, the more dominant framework, and, and the term ESP had just been coined when he was um, when he was finally writing his synchronicity monograph. But because of the intrinsically meaningful character of the phenomena he was trying to explain, what I would call precognitive dreams, he felt like it was somehow calling for a synthesis of physics and psychology. You know, his, his patient and friend Wolfgang Pauli encouraged him in those directions. But even Pauli was very disappointed <laughs> with, with what he came up with uh, because uh, his synchronicity monograph was kind of a failure. He, he, he sort of slaps a name on something, a very kind of sciencey sounding term on, you know, meaningful coincidence and just declares that, well, because, you know, cause and effect can't explain these things, we have to collapse the time dimension. That's how he puts it here, flatten the time dimension. And they're just phenomena of meaning, but he has no he offers no way of how meaning can interact with the physical world. I mean, there's no term there. He sort of invents a term, uh, synchronicity, sort of as a placeholder, kind of like, you know, back in the Middle Ages when they tried to explain combustion and they used the term phlogiston, you know, that the logs would contain this substance called phlogiston, which was the substance that burned, you know. It took a few decades for the discovery of oxidation reactions to explain, you know, how things catch fire. And they just weren't to a point in their science when they could do that. Well, sort of similarly with, with Jung's theory of synchronicity, he was kind of jumping the gun a little bit or trying to stamp a name on something, but that name can't really explain what's going on. And he's wrong about collapsing the time dimension. I mean, I think the crucial thing is to expand that time dimension and to under and to actually understand that time dimension, which is so hard for us cognitively. But when we do understand that time dimension and understand that causation, as physicists will now, many physicists will now tell you, goes not only forwards, but goes backwards as well along that time dimension. Brief but relevant tangent. Do you know the old SNL sketch where Christopher Walken plays Ed Glosser, (laughs) trivial psychic, a man who has the power of precognition but can only predict insignificant events? So, as in, his character touches a co-worker's hand at the office 
and his body convulses, and he says, Tomorrow, you're going to buy a cup of coffee to drink on the way to work. You're not going to drink it, the whole cup of coffee. You don't get it. You're wasting coffee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I don't remember that, but that is awesome. I need to, like, I'm totally going to use that. This was an SNL sketch? I'll put it in the show notes. Some good <laughs> precognitive humor. Oh, my God. That, like, that would have been so perfect for the book I just wrote because that's that's a big theme of, of, of what I'm writing about. I mean, you know, precognition it's not this rare thing that happens only around, you know, nine 11 and things like that. It's like a daily nightly occurrence in our dreams. And it's, we most often notice it. If people are paying attention, they most often notice it. You know, like I, the example I use in the book is a kind of dramatic dream that turned out to be about the sink backing up. You know, things, little, little minor upheavals in your day are the kinds of things that you recognize. And yeah, so that's a, that actually is a, distinct characteristic of precognition. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Eric Wargo. For more information on Eric, check the show notes. Half a century after 2001 A Space Odyssey was released, monoliths are once again on fleek. As 2020 came to a close, a year already festooned with febrile fuckery, a monolith was discovered in the wilds of remote Utah. It immediately and oddly captured the attention of people around the world. People who, heretofore, hadn't shown a hint of interest in geometrical enigmas. The artist or artists who created and placed the work must have had an appreciation for mystery and Kubrick. Because, let's face it, it's nearly impossible to behold a monolith without seeing the opening of 2001. The Mormon monolith, or Mormolith, as no one has come to call it, is the wrong color and poorly made. But it still managed to ignite a geyser-like reaction from hominids around the world. Not so much because they imagined aliens had made it, but because to behold a monolith is to imagine its maker, and its maker's maker. Alas, days after the discovery, troglodytes who find aesthetic gestures revolting destroyed the monolith along with any trace of its existence, just as the sun will do to Earth one day. However, another monolith was soon found in Romania. Again, sparking questions. What does it symbolize? Order in the midst of chaos? The unconscious? The oversoul? A penis? Maybe instead of asking what it symbolizes, we should ask if it symbolizes what? What? Pronoun meaning asking for information, specifying something. As in, what is the cloud of unknowing? What is the point of all places? What is the sound of one hand slapping your face before your parents were born? Mad props, ye monolith makers. 
and monolith breakers. One hand writes and one erases. Aliens and Artist is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on spirituality, creativity, non-ordinary experience, and transpersonal hypnotherapy. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session or check the show notes for a link. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron. You give us money, we give you art. Money, as you know, is a totally made-up thing, just like art. That's why artists need money, because only imaginary currency is accepted in imaginal grocery stores. And that's how I feed my family. Click the link in the show notes to become a patron. We bite into bitcoins. We drink those dollars. We urinate them euros. Oh,
Let's be.